Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the Friday version of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where host Landis Wade and his author guests get under the covers. That's right. We get in and out because there are just too many interesting books and engaging authors in the region and not enough time. And just like the longer version of the show, you'll learn interesting facts about the authors and their books, and the authors will read their work. And also, like the longer version, you will find images, links, and information about the authors in the show notes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more, and I also love getting under the covers with my authors. So let's get to it. Hey, listeners, welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast. Uh, I'm visiting today with uh, David Collins and talking about his book, Accidental Activist, Mark Ferris, Vic Holmes, and their fight for marriage equality in Texas. Dale Carpenter, professor of law at the Dedman School of Law at Southern Methodist University, says that Accidental Activist is a beautifully written book that tells the story of two men who did the extraordinary in order to live a life of the ordinary. Accidental Activist is first and foremost a love story of two men who, 16 years after they met and fell in love, decided that the time had come to bring the fight for same-sex marriage to their home state of Texas. This book deals with the crippling anxiety they felt growing up gay, the pain and suffering inflicted on them by straight society, and most of all, the ultimate triumph of two courageous men who rose up against determined political and cultural adversaries in Texas and around the United States, fought the legal battles that made gay marriage the law in Texas and joyfully claimed their right to love in the country they loved. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Landis. Yeah, and congratulations on this book. It's it's a great work. Uh, I know it took a lot of work, but congratulations. It took about 18 months in the writing. Yeah, and a little bit of the note for listeners, um, this book was chosen as a finalist for an Indies Best Book Award. Uh, it was published by the University of North Texas Press in August of 2017. And there's a lot more about uh, David and the book in the show notes, uh, which I'm going to defer to because we've got a lot to talk about uh, in this episode. But uh, David, before we talk about this inspiring book, let's talk a little bit about you and uh, how your path intersected with the path of one of the men who's featured in this book. You uh you earned a PhD in English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then you taught English and creative writing for 40 years, 40 years, at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. 40 years is correct. And sometimes I look back and I think, 
you know, how did I last quite so long? Uh, but uh, in point of fact, you know, accidental activist began, began in, in many ways by accident. In some ways, it began back in the fall of 1978. Uh, I was headed to my first class that, that year. We started in August. It was still ungodly warm. And when I, you know, when I enter the first class of the year, I always look around, having reviewed the class list before, uh, for distinguishing marks so I can f- start to figure out who's who. Uh, in the class. And one young man stood out, a kid with a shock of red hair who turned out to be Mark Farris. Well, on his first essay, I gave Mark a C. This was back in the days when you rattled people a little bit uh, in those early days and let them know this wasn't high school. And Mark had never seen a C or probably a B on anything else in his life. But instead of getting mad at me, he came to my office trying to find out what he could do to uh, improve in his writing. And that turned out to be the first of many, many conferences over the next four years. Mark uh, became an English major, took many classes with me, wrote a senior thesis with me. We got to be pretty good friends. You know, I heard a lot about his background. I heard a lot about his family. I heard a lot about, um, you know, his Boy Scout adventures, sharing my own with him, I suppose. Uh, I heard a lot about his aspirations for law school, but in those four years, I never heard that he was gay. Because- yeah, and I was, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, this The school you taught at Westminster, uh, was it the type of school uh, where the student body would have been accepting uh, of Mark as a gay in the 1970s? I don't think in the 1970s, no. In the 1970s, Westminster uh, was all male. Uh, the year after Mark enrolled, we went uh, co-ed. Uh, but it was still all male, and it was a testosterone-fueled environment, uh, probably not entirely friendly to uh, gay people. It was, you know, it, it was in Missouri. Uh, we were about five miles from a little place called Little Dixie Lake, and that, uh, you know, that atmosphere held. Uh, there had just been a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court at the University of Missouri. Uh, led by the organist, actually, of the Episcopal Church that we attended at that particular time in Fulton. And, uh, you know, when when um, they made their march, having won the right to a meeting place on campus over at the University of Missouri, they were pelted with rotten vegetables and rocks and jeers. And that was pretty much the atmosphere in Bend, Missouri in those days. Yeah, and so um, by the way, I like the fact that your email address starts with old prof forty. I guess that's an, a nod to your forty years. It is, yes. Westminster College. So, so, so over the years, you stayed in touch with uh, Mark because you, you formed this relationship, and then one day, you learned that Mark um, and his partner Vic were going to sue the state of Texas, um, and you reached out to him, and that's an interesting story. It sort of is what propelled you to write this book. I'd like you to tell that if you would. That's the other accident, an accidental activist, in addition to coming across Mark in class one day. Um, Mark and I did. We we kept in touch uh, after he graduated. He would come back every year or two. We would have lunch. We would have dinner. He'd come over the house. Um, you know, he came to my retirement party um, when, when uh, I, I, I retired uh we stayed pretty close. And of course, by this time, I knew that he was gay. Um, but in the late summer of 2013, after the Supreme Court had decided Windsor, 
And everybody knew pretty much at that point that Windsor was the threshold. After that, the next step was validation of gay marriage in the courts. Uh, Mark uh, announced on Facebook uh, that he was, uh, he, and, he and his partner, and, and a lesbian couple from Texas as well, uh, were going to sue the state of Texas for the right to marry. You know, that fall, I sent him congratulations. I wrote a little note about how, uh, you know, the legal tide was changing. More and more cases were going in favor of gay marriage. And, you know, it stayed that way for a while. Um, and then in February, Mark and Vic won their first case in the uh, federal district court for the Southern District of Texas. And, you know, there was much celebration, including more congratulatory notes from me. Uh, and after that, Texas appealed, of course, the next day. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans dragged their feet. We, they went from February, when the case was won in Texas in district court, until the next January before there was a hearing there. And that fall, as the hearing date at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals grew closer, Mark got very, very nervous uh, on Facebook. You could see a change in, in what was happening. You know, usually he'd post four, five or six posts about, you know, just ordinary life. And then uh, he'd post one or two things about the upcoming trial. But then suddenly the balance shifted and I could, I could sense that. Uh, and I wrote to him again, reassuring him, you know, uh, but I added that classic English teacher note, you know, I hope you're keeping a journal because this is going to make a great book. And within minutes, I got a, a message on Facebook that said, can I call you? And I said, of course, you know, just call me. Uh, Mark did. And I picked up the phone and we chatted uh, the usual pleasantries for a moment or two. And then Mark said, why don't you write the book? Uh, I was a little bit apprehensive at first. You know, I thought, can a straight man write a book about gay marriage and be convincing? Uh Mark sent me a, a long uh, account of his and Vic's life that was very, very moving. My wife and I flew down to Texas and spent a weekend with them, during which I recorded hours and hours of conversation, much of which f focused on the indignities that Mark and Vic had suffered their entire lives. And it was December 7th. I remember it was Pearl Harbor Day. And I remember thinking, this is my new fight. Uh, I'm going to write this book. Before we get under the covers, let's talk about uh, the book cover itself. Mark and Vic are hand in hand, uh, right hand, left hand. They're holding it up, and I, I think there's some symbolism here. What are what are their their hands <laughs> reaching above in the in this picture? Well, their hands are reaching above the uh, dome of the state capitol in Texas, and I don't know if you know this, but uh, the the state, you know, Texas is very proud of that the way that uh, building dominates. The dome is exactly four feet higher than the dome uh, of the, the U.S. Capitol in Washington D.C., and that's that was done purposely. Um, but that picture was taken by a professional uh, in anticipation of the book, and Mark sent it and a, and, a, and a bunch of others to me. And as soon as I saw that, I thought to myself, that is the cover of the book because it shows Mark and Vic's hands rising above the Capitol, dominating uh, Texas, and winning a victory for themselves and for all gay people who wanted the right to marry. I thought it was yeah, the perfect the absolutely perfect cover. And, you know, I was I was telling that story uh, uh, to Liam Callanan, a, a, a friend who, who also writes, and he, his reaction was, you got the cover you wanted? That never happens to me. 
uh, but it did yeah, in this it, case. It, it's a great image. I've been to the, that Capitol, and it is a, it, you know, as you walk up to it, it's a, it's a very impressive uh, facade and and dome there, and uh, just this image here of them after that long fight, uh, rising above the uh, really all the harshness that uh, was thrown at them from the state of Texas, by the state of Texas, and people in the state of Texas. So, uh, all right, uh, David, you ready to get under the covers? I am ready to get under the covers here. Hey, listeners, before we get under the covers, I'd like to share some benefits that are available to you, our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, uh, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. All right, we're talking about the book Accidental Activist uh, with David Collins. This is uh, the book about Mark Ferris, Vic Holmes, and their fight for marriage equality in Texas. And we've talked a little bit about the title, Accidental Activist. Uh, maybe accidental for Mark and Vic to get involved in this fight. Certainly accidental for David Collins to to, to write the book based on the t- story he's told us. But, Davis, give us a little more insight into this title because I don't think these men set out on their life journey to put themselves through what they did. They did not set out to do this, not at all. Um, You know, as I said, after Windsor, uh, Mark is an attorney. And Vic at the time uh, that they they started this battle here was just emerging from 22 years in the Air Force. He went in as an airman and came out as a major. Um, But after Windsor, Mark realized that, you know, the next step was gay marriage, and it was just a question of who and when. And, and get, 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 give us some context, David. I'm sorry to interrupt, but for, about Windsor, you've mentioned it several times, just so the audience yeah, has I'm the sequence sorry. of events. Windsor, oddly enough, was a tax case. Uh, a woman in New York by the name of Edith Windsor, after her uh, spouse died, they had been legally married in Canada, and the state of New York recognized their marriage. Uh, but the federal government wanted to charge them an inheritance tax. And uh, Edith Windsor didn't think that was quite right since they were legally married and since their marriage was recognized in the state where they lived. So she went to Roberta Kaplan, uh, who at the time was with with Paul Weiss in New York, and they filed a suit. Um, They won that suit. Um, and that that paved the way to gay marriage because Kennedy's decision said, you know, you can't deny you can't deny these fundamental rights to people just because they're members of a minority that you don't like. So when that happened, uh, Mark was on the phone one day with a friend uh, in San Antonio who was a lawyer, um, worked for Aiken Gump. And that friend said to him, we need a law case in Texas. And actually, Mark said to him, we need a law case in Texas. And the man, uh, Mark said, yeah, but the first thing we need is a law firm that will take the case on. So Frank Stenger Castro went to Aiken Gump, uh, 
uh, to the committee in charge of pro bono work, and they approved a they approved they approved taking the case. They approved a billion a budget of over a million and a half dollars to support the case. So Mark and Vic knew they were serious. But then Frank called back, and he said, "Mark, we're looking for plaintiffs now." We need people who are fine, upstanding members of their community, like perhaps a corporate lawyer and a, and a retired Air Force major. You know, <laughs> He didn't put it in quite those blunt terms, uh, but Mark uh, realized that they had been fingered. Uh, he asked for time. Mark was at work when he got that call. He wanted to go home and he wanted to talk about it with Vic. They were more than a little bit afraid. You know, they they lived in North Texas, which is not as gay friendly as, say, Austin or San Antonio or even Houston. Um, they lived down the street from the Prestonwood Baptist Church that had a long record of anti-gay actions um, and anti-gay rallies and meetings at their church. Um, they just didn't know if they wanted to go public in that particular way. Uh, they agonized over it for a long time before finally they said, okay, we will do this. And they didn't do this until they went down to a, a meeting at the house of Barry Chasnoff, who was at that point going to be the lead attorney on the case, met the other plaintiffs, met some of the lawyers at the law firm, and became convinced that they weren't going to, the law firm wasn't going to abandon them in mid-career, that they'd go through with it. Uh, it was a real struggle for them. They were worried about the kinds of things that might happen. They were worried that people would attack their property. They were worried about people that would hurt their beloved beagles. Uh, you know, Vic put it beautifully, I think. He said that, you know, we weren't worried that a crowd was going to come marching down our street with pitchforks and torches. What we worried about, he said, was the one crazy guy with a long gun who would say to himself, I can fix this and would take yeah. care of it that way. Yeah. And, and in that uh, spirit, um, you've got a read here and, it, and we're going to go back in time just a little bit because, um, and this is a read that you picked out because I think you said you wanted to set up for the audience here a little bit about, Mark's experience growing up and, and some of the things that he was feeling and dealing with uh, that kind of set the stage for some of the things you just said about why they might be concerned taking on Texas of all places, um, which sometimes doesn't consider itself to be a part of the United States. So. <laughs> they do have their own embassy in, in London. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, let's do the read now and then come back and talk some more about the uh, the lawsuit and what happened uh, with respect to that? As I started to, to think about the book after saying that I would do it, you know, um, I thought long and hard about what kind of book it had to be. And I decided, you know, after that long uh, weekend of talks with Mark and Vic, that I didn't just want to record their experience. I didn't want to just understand their experience. I, I wanted to, to get to the point where I could feel their experience themselves and to write in a way that would allow other allow readers to you know feel their experience uh, as well. Um, I I I wanted to do that because I I realized that you know this fight for same sex marriage I, I knew that was going to be won, but I knew there was much more to be done after that in terms of total acceptance. And of course, we've seen that you know in Masterpiece Bake Shop and, and other cases, and we'll we will see more of that as uh, the religious right gears up. So, you know, in, when I saw an opportunity uh, to gin up the emotion, I did just that. Uh, this is a kind of a summary, this, this passage here, of Mark's uh, recognition that he was gay. He knew from the time he was six. 
and his reaction to that as a boy and as a young man. He was lucky, he says, because his um, his immediate family didn't didn't you know didn't instill that. Oh my God, you know it's it's terrible to be gay into him. But yet, um, begin the passage here. The anti-gay message eventually found its way into his head, seepage from the general culture. Mark was just a few months shy of his 14th birthday when in October 1973, the local paper, the Lawton Constitution, reported a study by Eugene Leavitt and Albert Glasson on attitudes toward homosexuality. Two-thirds of those surveyed considered homosexuality, quote, very obscene and vulgar. Almost 50% saw in homosexuality, another quotation, a corruption that can cause the downfall of a civilization. Fully a third thought homosexuals should be jailed. Born into a world in which he was ill-equipped to live, Mark suffered at night, alone with his thoughts. Late at night, in bed by myself, I'd cry myself to sleep, he said. I pray for God to make me straight, or if he couldn't, to take me in my sleep. Like many another trapped between worlds, he thought of taking his own life. But though his prayers went unanswered, he somehow turned away from death. Each morning I'd wake up, still very much alive, still very much attracted to men. Through high school and college, through law school and beyond, Mark was painfully aware that he would be ostracized were anyone to discover, even to suspect that he was gay. He struggled to maintain a double life, perpetually guilty of bad faith, of denying who he was. Ever more aware that his sexual orientation set him apart from his classmates, Mark realized as a teenager that cultural warnings to the LGBT community were flying thick and fast. Classes had barely begun in the fall of 1975 when he pulled a September 8th copy of Time from the mailbox and found himself face-to-face with Leonard Matlovich, the first openly gay man ever to appear on the cover of a national magazine who was discharged from the Air Force a month later, punishment for being a homosexual. Just a year and a few months later, uh, after the Leonard Matlovich story broke, Mark was knocked on his heels again by Anita Bryant's vicious Save Our Children campaign in Florida. 17 years old, a soon-to-be high school senior living in Lawton, Oklahoma, Mark watched in horror realizing that Anita Bryant's hate had sprung from roots in the home state they shared. He shuddered anew in January 1978 when Mary Helm, a state senator, brought the lies on which the Save Our Children campaign was founded to Oklahoma. Determined to drive gays and lesbians from public school classrooms, she introduced a bill that would allow administrators to refuse to hire or to fire teachers for advocating, soliciting, imposing, encouraging, or promoting public or private homosexual activity. Helms' bill passed by overwhelming margins, 88 to 2 in the House of Representatives, unanimously in the Senate, and was quickly signed into law. It was a frightening time for me, Mark recalled nearly 40 years later, 17 years old and living in Oklahoma, to realize that I was gay in a society that did not accept me. The only sensible thing to do seemed not to be gay. I didn't think anyone would love me if they knew I was gay, he wrote of those unsteady years. I realized I could die at any time, unloved. 
that was where he found himself. Yeah, no, that's that's terrible um, to think about that experience that he went through. Um, but it's not something that, uh, you know, has left us in this country. There are, and that gets a little bit into the aftermath. So I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We have this fight first for marriage equality. Um, and I was thinking, you know, who takes on the state of Texas and lives to tell about it? It sounds a bit like a teaser for a spaghetti Western, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, this was, you weren't, this wasn't any vanilla state that they're taking on. We've got a national movement here. We've got state laws. We've got constitutional amendments that are sweeping the country to try to prevent civil unions and, and, and gay marriages. And they're going to take on the state of Texas. Um, I'd like to just start um, a little bit quick run through the arc of this legal battle. It started with a request for a marriage license. And I love the imagery of the fact that they took off on a plane from Love Field yes. in, in Dallas. <laughs> they flew to San Antonio. How fitting. They arrive and the clerks are dumbfounded, right? What, what do you mean you're applying for a marriage? We don't do that here. They, 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 that is one of the best scenes of the book, I think. And they, there's a wry sort of humor to it. But of course, like so much of the humor in the book, it's a kind of a sad humor. Um, that Mark, Mark has always stressed, and, and Vic as well, that the clerks were very polite, but they were just flabbergasted. They, they couldn't believe uh, that somebody had come down, you know, to uh, apply uh, for a ma marriage license. And, you know, the, the reply was simply, we don't do that here. We don't do yeah. that in Texas. Um, and Mark and Vic were turned away. Of course, they knew they were going to be, and there was a, a representative there from Aiken Gump to film and witness the scene. Uh, but that was a necessary step, being officially refused a, a, a license in San Antonio. And I think it's important to, to point out that they they went back to San Antonio because that's the city where they met. They they were living in Plano by, by this time, but they had met and they had fallen in love and they had their early years in San Antonio and they wanted to celebrate that by going back there to uh to apply for the uh, uh wedding license. It's 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 kind of a sign to me of the the the, the ultimate humanity of Mark and Vic, though those little things, those little symbolic gestures, you know, that uh that, that they uh enacted all through this fight. Uh, like that return to San Antonio for this particular occasion. Yeah, we don't have time to go through all of the arc of this story because it's a very comprehensive book. And you do a good job, David, of uh, taking these legal concepts and boiling them down so that uh, people can understand them well. But they did have a lot of legal obstacles. They had opposition, judge shopping, efforts to stall, uh, trial court maneuvers, appellate court stallings, and I was just wondering, were you surprised you're not a lawyer, but you got into this and probably could argue now in an appellate court after what you've done? Were you surprised at how the legal system uh, threw up so many hurdles in their way before they could actually finally get this before the Supreme Court? Well, I don't know if you've ever read Charles Dickens' Bleak House, but anybody who has read Bleak House is not surprised at the fact that the legal system can throw up barrier after barrier after barrier 
you know, to the point where in Bleak House, as you may remember, you know, uh, the people trying to settle this estate are bankrupt long before the estate is settled. So, no, I wasn't I wasn't surprised by that. And of course, uh, I knew that Texas would throw up every legal barrier possible. I think I think that the state knew. Uh, from the very beginning, that this was a losing battle. Uh, but I think that uh, Greg Abbott, the gov- well, it was uh, Rick Perry who was governor at first. And then while this battle was going on, uh, Greg Perry took over as governor. I think they knew that this was a losing battle, but they had to do this for political purposes to appeal to their base. So, um, no, nothing about what happened in the legal system surprised me. Uh, yeah, and I'd like you to do something uh, for me, David. It's uh, it's on page 263. Uh, it's a uh, part of the Supreme Court decision, which has been uh, read many times. Uh, just a, a little point of personal privilege here. Um, my, uh, my daughter uh, lived in Austin, Texas for a while after college. She is gay. She then moved to Kansas to, to get an American Studies graduate degree and uh, met her partner. They moved back to Austin. They lived there for a while because they love Austin. They just love the the city. They love the environment. But the laws of Texas weren't accepting of them at the time. And her graduate school or partner's graduate school brought her back to uh, Chapel Hill and they were in North Carolina. But at the time, North Carolina passes a uh, constitutional amendment uh, as if to say, you're not welcome home here because you're gay. Um, This story did have a happy ending, though. The Supreme Court handed down its decision my daughter and Julia were married um, in Austin, Texas, <laughs> and uh, all of our family and her family were there to help us uh, celebrate. And I see here a little hope, David, in these uh, unforeseen, unknown connections. Uh, two men in Texas who I don't know, uh, except through your excellent book here, helped make my daughter's wedding in Texas possible. And I don't know if Mark and Vic, if you're listening out there, but I want to thank you for your efforts and David yours too for telling the story because um, that was a wonderful day for our family and for them. And, you know, taking on Texas is not a thing. And this little passage you're going to read, David, uh, which is from Kennedy's uh, majority opinion uh, in the case that, you know, we're here talking about is what I read at the reception um, after her wedding. And, uh, so if you'll pick it up with no union is more profound than marriage. Uh, Absolutely. The the uh, now famous and justifiably so last paragraph of Kennedy's decision in Obergefell. No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than once they were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, Marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say that they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. Yeah, it's kind of hard read, for me to read that without getting emotional. <laughs> yeah, and it's hard for me to hear it as well without uh, getting emotional, and for me to read it at the time as well uh, after my daughter Jordan was married. But uh, that that word dignity is something that uh, 
Kennedy focused on, that the uh, that the lawyers arguing the case um, for the petitioners focused on, and really, um, that's kind of what this is about, right? It is. Uh, you know, it, it it's it's about it's it's about the right to be who you are. You know, um, Vic Vic tells a story um, about. You know, uh, his his early attempts uh, and both men made these attempts uh, to be straight, you know, and and when Vic was a teenager, he knew his parents wondered why he wasn't so interested in dating. He developed a girlfriend It kind of fell together. She's called Brandy Chevette in the book, but that's not her real name. But um, he faked it with her as long as he could. You know, one day his father came home from work and found him and Brandy in Vic's bedroom. And if that had happened and I, my father had found me in the bedroom with a young woman when I was 17, that there would have been hell to pay. Uh, but Vic's father was kind of overjoyed uh, by that. Uh, but Vic said, you know, um, after about faking it, I knew from that point forward that I wasn't going to be me anymore. Um, it, 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 it's it's the other word in in Kennedy's lexicon. In addition to dignity, was personhood, and they get repeated in the Romer decision, in the Lawrence decision, and in the Windsor decision, and then and then of course, in the Obergefell uh, decision. He had a sense uh, he had a sense of empathy uh, with with uh, gay people and understanding that they were human beings who wanted these basic rights, that they were suffering very much from the denial of these basic rights, and he was willing unlike Justice Scalia, who emerges as a bit of a villain in the book, uh, to grant them those rights. Yeah, and and we're almost running out of time. There's so much to talk about here, David, but I want to just, I want to make this observation. There is so much uh, mean-spiritedness on, on the one hand and love on the other that this book is a bit like a roller coaster. Um, the mean-spiritedness comes along in a number of different ways, and, you know, a man jumps in line while they're waiting, Vic and Mark are waiting. They have the last two tickets to get in to hear the argument in front of the Supreme Court. And someone jumps in line and takes, and that's a great story. And then a man screams during the argument uh, that the Bible teaches that if you support gay marriage, you will burn in hell. This in the hallowed halls of the U.S. Supreme Court, to which Justice Scalia, after they drag this man from the room, says, well, that was rather refreshing. And you you comment on the irony of that uh, in the book. And then the backlash in Texas, the fighting now for religious freedom bills to be free of complying with what's the law of the land, to try to figure out a way for clerks not to have to give marriage licenses by pretending they have, you know, some religious objection to the law. or if, And then married at last, as you say in the chapter, deep in the heart of Texas. And I suppose my question after that sort of rambling discussion of the ups and downs is, there are a lot of emotional moments in this book uh, and in this struggle, and you were very close to this. And I'm wondering, did any one stand out more than the other for you? Um, you know, I, I think I, I think there are any any number of uh, great scenes in the book, you know, uh, that, that, that it evoke that kind of emotion. I think maybe if I had to pick one, it would that be that moment um, – in the Fifth Circuit Court in New Orleans, when Mark and Vic are listening to the personal details of their lives, uh, you know, being put on display for everybody, and Vic suddenly realizes that, you know, tears are falling down his face and falling onto his hands, 
Um, and, you know, I, I guess before that, he wasn't exactly quite aware of, of what was happening there. Um, but, you know, I think that 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 moment there shows the depth uh, of, of the way the people who fought this battle, you know, Cleopatra and Nicole, Mark and Vic, uh, felt about what was happening, about how difficult it was for them to do this um, and the personal struggles that they endured, you know, as they as they were going through all this. Um, as I was writing the book, um, at various stages, I sent chapters, uh, the whole book, off to several friends uh, when I was done. And almost everybody who read it pre-publication wrote back and said, you know, I cried. I read the book with tears in my eyes, you know, and I thought, this is great. I'm back to being a college professor, you know, making people <laughs> cry again. <laughs> well, it's well, not exactly what I wanted, but, but I did want to move them. And apparently it succeeded in doing that. Well, I, I agree. And I, I confess that it's parts of the book I'm angry, but then when they have success and this mega wedding scene <laughs> takes place and all of the toasts and everything, it, it you know, I got a little teary eyed as well. It's uh it's very emotional. Look, Dave, we don't have much time. I want to do just one or two writing life questions here. Um, there's a piece of writing advice out there that's just thoroughly debated, trashed and defended and beat up. And it's write what you know. And of course, that's not exactly what you did here. You, you, uh, you've written a, a lot of works over time, uh, but nothing exactly like this. And I'm wondering, how was that for you to jump into this project, uh, taking on something entirely different from what you were used to writing? You know, it, 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 it was a baptism by fire, I guess. I think the good news is that I, I think I was born to do research. Hmm. Even in the novel I'm working on now, I find myself doing a lot of background research to make sure I get things, you know, right in, in, in terms of historical context and that sort of thing. Um, I enjoy doing research. Uh, I don't mind doing it. I'm willing to put the time in and it is time consuming. Uh, and, you know, I discovered in the process of doing this that although from the time I was a sophomore in college, I was determined that I was going to be a college professor teaching English, I never considered anything else. I realized that I really like the law. <laughs> I, I like reading it. I like studying it. Uh, I like wrestling with it to understand it, you know, um, I, I, I was reading uh, last night, uh, you, you, you've, you've interviewed uh, Philip Lewis, uh, author of The Barrow Fields, you know, and he talk, he makes some jokes there about uh, Shelley's rule in law school and that yeah, sort of yeah. thing there, you know. Um, and uh, I, I, I was reading that, uh, you know, and, and, and thinking, um, well, you know, th th this is the kind of thing I actually enjoy. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's perverse, but there we are. Right. Well, you, you can define the rule against perpetuities for all the lawyers who had to go through that. Uh, uh, <laughs> So, um, David, what has writing this book uh, meant to you in your personal journey, not just as a writer, but as a human being? Well, you know, when I started to write this, I mean, we had any number of gay friends, you know, we had uh, we had uh, males uh, that we knew who were gay couples. We had females that we knew were gay couples. I don't think when I started to write this. I recognized how many, for example, long-term couples there were in the gay community. Uh, you know, people people like uh, Mark's friends uh, in, in Texas who had been together 54 years, uh, you know, on the day that Obergefell was decided and were finally able to get married. You know, it, it was a kind of eye-opener to me that, 
you know, even though I spent my life as a college professor and, you know, spent, what, uh, 12 years in college and learned a lot of stuff and continued to learn for another 40 years while, while you're teaching, that just goes on and on and on. I think what it did was make me realize how much I didn't know. There's always something more out there to discover. And uh, I hope there always is. I think there will be. Yeah, well, you do a great job, as I said earlier, of uh, writing this book uh, in, in a way that's very accessible and you take us through. Now, you know, most of these Supreme Court decisions, you know, are not that plain and narrow when it comes to explaining their position. You have to look sort of at the end to figure out, OK, did I win or did I lose after the, after the, after they go on for a while? But you do a good job of, of doing that and back and forth. And there's some great stories in this book and we can't cover them all. Um, I'm curious, David, what's next for you? You've now written this. I think you told me that having done this now, you might, uh, have been encouraged to write a novel. Uh, you know, George Hodgman, uh, author of Bettyville, um, uh, who reviewed it for the press said that the, uh, the courtroom scenes were done with something like uh, novelistic intensity or something like that. And I thought, damn it, George, that's it. I'm going to write a novel. <laughs> so I'm about two thirds of the way through now a novel set at Shakespeare and Company, the famous bookstore that George Whit Whit Whitman founded in Paris. Um, it, it Like this one, it's a love story, but like this one, it's complicated. You know, a young man and a young woman, a jazz musician and a writer, come together at Shakespeare and Company, and they arrive there carrying only backpacks, but they've got a whole lot of baggage um, that they're carrying with them that has to be unpacked before they can become a couple and then face some external threats that uh, get, uh, you know, tend to come down on them. Listeners, we've been talking with David Collins. He's the author of Accidental Activists, Mark Ferris, Vic Holmes, and their Fight for Marriage Equality in Texas. Uh, it's a great read. You won't be disappointed. A lot of good uh, scenes uh, in the book. And in the end, uh, love wins. Right, David? The last two words of the book. <laughs> love wins. Hey, David, thanks for being on uh, Charlotte Rear's podcast. Thanks very much, Land. It's a pleasure to talk to you and to the people listening in. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.